Well, a minute ago, we were talking over here, and I said, I'm not really an after-dinner speaker. And the brother said, well, that's good, because we're not really after-dinner listeners. <laughs> what a wonderful meal we've enjoyed together. The fellowship has been wonderful. Thank you for your hospitality toward my family and me. And uh, the sense of, of love, togetherness, unity that you all have as a congregation is just a wonderful thing. And I'm so grateful to get to be a part of it and to enjoy it this afternoon. Am I saved? Can I know it? You know, have you observed like I have, uh, sometimes in certain hotel rooms, you may go in there to the bathroom and sometimes they'll have lights all around the mirror. So you can really get in there and see what's going on, you know, with your face while you're trying to get ready during the day. Other times they won't have that, and it's just one single bulb, like way behind you. And that shift in perspective makes all the difference in uh, how together you are by the time you get out and go where you're going. I'm not going to tell you which kind our hotel room is, because it might influence what you think about how put together I am or lack thereof. James, in James chapter 1, talks about looking in a mirror. He says that uh, we're to be hearers, doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then he gives this illustration. For if anyone hears the word and does not do it, he's like a man who beholds himself in a glass or in a mirror. And then he goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in his deed. The idea is I can look in a mirror and I may look but I don't really see. Or maybe I see but I don't really do anything about what I see. Something in my teeth, miss the button, you know, something like that. And I just go on and forget about it. doesn't matter. But to look in the perfect law of liberty, and sometimes I may be faced then with something that is other than what I'd really like to see. But to look into this law, and it's a law of liberty, no less, hearkening back to what we discussed in Bible class a little earlier, a law that makes it possible, that reveals to us how it's been made possible by the blood of Jesus for me to be liberated of my sins and then for my sinful past to be forgiven and forgotten by God. Am I saved? The Bible warns a lot about deception. And sometimes that deception comes from external forces. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul says that we can be deceived by empty words. In uh, 2 John verse 7, John tells us that it's possible for us to be deceived by false teachers. Pride can enter in and, and cause us to be deceived, 1 John 1, 8, or James 1, verse 26. You know, in 1 John, John says, if somebody says, I haven't sinned, well, he's lying and you're making God a liar because God says otherwise, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Of interest, though, is the fact that Scripture often points out that we can deceive ourselves, so deception doesn't just have to come from external factors. It can also be something that begins within. So what we 
mentioned a moment ago from the book of James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's kind of like the mirror thing that I was just talking about in certain hotels. Is my perspective right as I'm looking at myself? Am I willing to view myself through God's lens? Or am I going to try to justify myself by viewing myself through my own lens? Sometimes we talk about rose-colored glasses, you know, and we're only willing to see certain things from certain perspectives. But the Bible is clear that at the root of all deception is Satan. 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts could be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion. And he goes on to talk about how this could affect their salvation. Now listen, he's writing to the church at Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians. And yet he goes on in 2 Corinthians 11.4 to talk about somebody who may proclaim another Jesus or receive a different spirit or a different gospel. See, there, there are people out there that are trying to deceive us and then by my buying into some of those things... I could deceive myself. And this isn't just something that is like a threat to people who aren't yet Christians. Even Christians can become callous to the truth and turn our ears away from that preaching of the truth. We all like to feel good about ourselves. And sometimes when we're confronted with the reality of, of sin, and this happens to every one of us, right? If our hearts aren't pliable to the word of God, then we might be willing to fall into deception. So this afternoon, as we think about an answer to this question, am I really saved and can I know it? I want us to discuss together, briefly, five dangerous deceptions. We're going to do this in kindness. We're not trying to call anybody out or be unkind unnecessarily toward anyone but to look at five common responses that people have as they think about salvation. And then let's look at this over against what God's word teaches and thus to answer the question, am I saved? Am I among those saints about which we spoke in our previous session? All right, you ready? Five things. Number one, salvation by human merit. You know, it, it can be deceiving, Sometimes we think, I've got to be good enough. I've got to do enough in order to be saved. Or sometimes it's on the other side of this. People will say, well, I'm a good person. I do good deeds. Therefore, I must be saved, right? I'm already good with God. I want you to think about what was read for us a moment ago from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. The apostle says that I've been saved by Grace, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace. All right, if we're going to talk about the cause of this salvation, he says the cause is the grace of God. It's by grace that you've been saved. Sometimes we describe grace in a little two-word summary, right? Unmerited favor. And just that. And I th by the way, I think that's biblical. Perhaps that, you know, we could expound upon that a little bit more. But grace is something that I cannot earn. It is something that I do not deserve. In fact, in other passages, like in Romans chapter 3, we'll look at this a little more in depth uh, in the coming days. 
But in Romans 3, verses 23 and following, Paul says that while it's true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he then follows it up by saying that our salvation is a gift. Translating a term that actually quite literally means something that I cannot earn nor could I buy on my own. Salvation by human merit? God's grace is the cause, but returning to Ephesians chapter 2, he gives us then the channel by which I can receive the gift of grace and appropriate it to my soul. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith. So I believe something and then I act upon those beliefs. I like the word conviction because if I'm convicted of something, it implies I'm going to do something about that. More on that in just a minute. So I'm acting upon what I trust in God and what I believe, and I'm doing what he tells me to do. And in so doing, I'm sort of reaching up, so to speak, to receive the gift of grace, something that I could not earn, something that I could not merit on my own. And so I'm submitting to God's plan so that I can comply with the requirements necessary for grace to be appropriated to my soul. And I'm doing that in response to who God is. And therefore... He says, by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, right? Not of works, so that no one can boast. 1 Corinthians 1.29, Paul says, if anybody's going to boast, he ought to boast in the Lord. The result is, we are his workmanship, 2.10 says, Ephesians 2.10. Workmanship meaning a product, something that God has made. There's a lot of emphasis and has been throughout the history of this country on being self-made, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There's some merit to the work ethic, perhaps, behind that sentiment. But at the same time, the sentiment is totally foreign to Christianity. Self-made? No. We're his workmanship, something that he's created. I belong to him. I'm his product. And so, when we think about salvation... Human merit? No. As an example, just think in your mind, if you want to turn to Acts 10, but for time's sake, just think for a moment about this fellow named Cornelius. We're told in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius was a devout man, that he was a benevolent man. That is to say, as the text says, he gave alms regularly. He was also a centurion of the Italian cohort. Okay, so not just a soldier, but he's over quite a lot of other soldiers as well. Here's an important man. Here's a generous man. Here's a man who is Godward in his thinking, if you please. He's searching, if you will. And yet scripture itself describes him as a devout man who feared God, verse 2, with his family. He prayed continually. As I read through Acts chapter 10, I find that as uh, Cornelius is praying. An angel, a representative of God, appears to him and instructs him to send men toward Peter. Peter is staying at Simon's house. And so Cornelius complies with that. Off they go. Meanwhile, Peter, on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house, sees this vision that is preparing Peter for what it is that he's about to do. God is trying to impress upon the heart of Peter that salvation is for everyone. A point that really has been made, a seed thought, going back to Jesus' ministry, and then continues forward. But now it's about time for the first recorded gospel message to be preached to a Gentile family. And that's Cornelius. 
Peter has to be impressed with that truth. And so the Holy Spirit shows him this wonderful scene of these animals that are being let down, some clean and some unclean, by virtue of the Old Testament law. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord, I've never, I've never been involved in eating things that were unclean. Uh, don't, don't call something unclean that God calls clean. About that time, Cornelius' representatives arrive. Peter and those, these representatives talk for just a moment, and the result is Peter's going to Cornelius' house. In Acts chapter 10, we continue reading around verses 20 to 22, and then going down to 30 and following When Peter arrives, dropping down to verse 34, he opens his mouth and he says, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. All right, Peter's making this point. Listen, anybody who'll do the right thing can be accepted by God. Anybody who will follow and obey what it is that God teaches. For time's sake, skipping down to verse 48, Peter, as he observes... One more sign to confirm that this is the right course of action. I mean, if you think about what Peter's in right now, he's about to extend the gospel to these Gentiles. And Peter really needs to be convinced this is the thing that God wants him to do. And so the Holy Spirit comes down upon Cornelius and his household. And that's a sign to Peter, right? I mean, this same thing that happened to us apostles back on in Acts chapter 2 is now happening to these people. And so I, I'm not going to refuse them this baptism. Verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What's interesting about all this is if, if it would be possible for someone to be saved by virtue of their own merit, by, by their own virtuous deeds, I think Cornelius would have fit the bill. But according to these passages, we've seen that that's not the method by which I can be saved. I can't earn my way into heaven. And so it would be dangerous for me to think otherwise. Salvation by human merit. All right, let's build on that. Number two, that is salvation by sinner's prayer. Salvation by sinner's prayer. You know, I'm not saved because I'm glorious. I am saved in order to reflect the glory of God. When I think about the sinner's prayer, you know, sometimes uh, I still hear about the sinner's prayer from time to time. At other times, it'll be phrased like this, just ask Jesus into your heart. Sometimes people will talk about being saved by faith alone. I don't want to be unkind to any of these people. I I love them as human beings. I respect them for their desire to to want to do right. But the problem is I don't read anything about this kind of stuff in Scripture. So I've got to ask myself, all right, how then can I be saved? If works cannot save me, and we've just established that, salvation by human merit isn't the means by which I can be saved. Sometimes people want to swing the opposite direction. And they'll say, okay, well then if I'm, I'm not saved by works, so I'm saved by faith alone. And by that they mean, okay, if I just accept Jesus... If I acknowledge him, and to our point from this morning a little earlier, they will say that God has planted that faith within my heart, and therefore that's an evidence of the fact that I'm saved. But I think we're swinging too far here. I think we're we're maybe trying to overcorrect at some points. Because while it is true that, that works of their own merit, good things that I do cannot justify my salvation, 
It's also true that there's no such thing as faith that doesn't work. Faith that isn't active. Go with me to James chapter 2 just a minute. And let's dig into this just a second. James 2 starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if somebody says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, this is an interesting question, isn't it? All right. If somebody has, says they have faith, but they're not acting that faith, they're not, as we just saying, living by faith, can that save him? He gives us a practical example in 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? All right, I see your need. I have the means to aid you toward your need, but I just say, hey, I hope things get better for you. Hey, I'll be praying for you. Walk away. Well, thanks for nothing, right? Uh, You could help me, but you haven't done anything. James concludes, so faith also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right now, in verses 18 through 26 or so, James is going to kind of talk about a scientific approach to faith, if you will. Let's appeal to the senses. What does it look like? Uh, you know, it, how, how do I know it when I see it? What color is it? What shape is it? You know, that sort of thing. Let, let's, let's apply it empirically for a moment. And so he says in verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James replies, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. By the way, it, how can you show faith without some kind of work, right? Some kind of action. That's James's point. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? For time's sake, let's drop down to 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith only. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. Stop and take that in for just a second. There are people who claim faith in Jesus, but Jesus says not all of those people will be admitted entrance into heaven. Jesus, how can that be? Well, tell me, what do you mean by that? Well, let's keep reading. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Ah, okay. So that's kind of like what James was talking about. Somebody says, I have faith, but James says they don't have works. Somebody is claiming the name of Jesus, but they're not actually following Jesus. Jesus himself says in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I command you to do? He's not my master if I'm not following him, right? Salvation by this sinner's prayer. I want you to think about Saul or Paul in Acts chapter 9, and then we'll read in Later chapters as well, chapter 22 and chapter 26, as Paul is reflecting on what happened when he was converted to Jesus. But in Acts chapter 9, Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's secured letters from the authorities that be, 
uh, in Jerusalem to go and to get Christians to bind them up and to bring them back to do all manner of evil against them. You know, he was known as Saul back then. He's Saul the persecutor. This is before he becomes Paul the preacher. And on the way to Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, this bright light shines round about him. It's so bright that it blinds him. And the voice of the Lord begins to call to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Sidebar, to persecute Christians is to persecute the Lord, his work. Why are you persecuting me? What do you want me to do, Lord? Go on into Damascus and it'll be told to you what you need to do. This man named Ananias is going to help you out. All right, pause. If we could stop Paul, if we saw Saul on, on this road and he's still blind and he's en route to Damascus, he's going to make his way to Ananias. This is like a three-day thing, this blindness that he's got because of this light that he's seen. And if we stop and say, hey, whoa, Saul, Saul, just quick question for you. Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, Yeah. Uh, I can't see right now because of Jesus. I am positive that he's real. Saul, are you saved? Isn't it interesting that I guess Jesus could have told Saul right then and there, hey, in order to be saved, you need to do this, 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 this. But instead, he's going to go through a human channel, Ananias. Ananias is going to tell you what you need to do. Ananias kind of needs to be convinced a little of that. Uh, God, you mean you want me to go to Saul of Tarsus, the guy that's coming here to get people like me and take us back to Jerusalem, perhaps even to kill us. You want me to preach Jesus to this guy. Yep, that's the one. All right, he does it. And in Acts 22, 16, the culmination of all of this is Paul recalls what happened. Among the things that were said, Ananias said to him, why are you waiting Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Saul believed in Jesus back there on the road. I mean, he'd been blinded by him. He talked to him. But he's not saved until later. Specifically until baptism, right? Number three, salvation by emotional experience. Hey, listen. I'm not saved because I'm glorious. I can't merit my salvation. And having a Godward attitude is important, but, but it's, it's incomplete without obedience. Acts of faith works, if you will. So sometimes somebody will say, you know, I, I feel saved. I can feel it. That's how I know I'm saved. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand each other, even after lunch on a Sunday afternoon. So listen carefully. Because I do not believe that Christianity is to be void of feeling. Quite the opposite. If I am saved, I think I can know that I'm saved and therefore I ought to feel saved. I mean, there ought to be a feeling about that. And in fact, as I go to 1 John, I can see that pretty clearly. Uh, flip over there. We just need to survey a few passages uh, for time's sake. But if I go to 1 John chapter 5 for just a moment and I look down in verse 13, I find out one of the things I love about John's little epistle. And that is John says, I can know that I'm saved. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John, how much do you want us to know this? Well, I've written this for that purpose. I'm writing these things down so that you can know that you have eternal life. Hey, listen, like I said, I think there's a feeling to this. 
So back up a little bit to chapter 2. And let's start at verse 3. 1 John 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. All right, when, when any time an inspired writer says something like that, I'm, I'm starting to lean in, you know. Tell me more. How can I know that I know him? How can I know that I have a relationship with God? He continues, verse 3. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth isn't in him. Wait a minute, look at that. He's deceived. Maybe he's deceiving himself. Maybe he's trying to deceive somebody else. But in in this sort of hypothetical example that John has given, we've got this guy who says, I know him, but he's not doing. And what he says, he's not really corroborating his actions. And as a result, John says the truth isn't in him. It's not just what he says, it's who he is. He doesn't have the truth in him. Because he's claiming one thing but doing another. Whoever keeps his word, verse 5, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Notice that obedience reveals the genuineness of my faith, the authenticity of my confession, the maturing of my love, the growth in my Christ-likeness. I might feel something. But you know, the heart is deceitful at times. That's what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 17. And there's a way that may seem right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, Proverbs 14, verse 12. So yes, I I can know that I'm saved in terms of scriptural salvation. And if I know that I'm saved in terms of what God says, then I ought to feel that. But at the same time, I don't lead with my feelings. I lead with what I know, these convictions, this faith that I have, and then my feelings can follow. Sometimes I can be sincere, but as we say, I can be sincerely wrong. About 10 years ago, I was preaching on a Sunday, and I felt like my heart was going to beat right through my suit. And it wasn't nerves. Well, maybe it was a little nerves, but it was more than that. Then I started feeling the numbness down my left side. And looking out at the group, I started getting that tunnel vision kind of thing that happens. And they tell me I was white as a sheet. But that was one of my shorter sermons. I basically said, come now as we stand and sing, and went and stood down uh, in the front. There was a lady who was present with us who at the time was a nurse in the a cardiac unit at St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville. And she came up to me and did the magic finger thing on my wrist. And she said, you get to the emergency room right now. So I went home, changed clothes, and grabbed a bite to eat. <laughs> and then went to the emergency room. Started feeling a little better. I quit preaching. And they ran me through all the tests. You know, when you go in the emergency room and you say heart, they say right this way. And they ran me through everything. And then, over the course of several days and weeks... Even more. Blood tests, stress tests, all the things. And everything came back and said, you're fine. Yeah, I'm 25. Of course I'm fine. You know, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, it ended up, I have a B12 deficiency. It's called pernicious anemia. And now, me and my grandmother, 
We used to go at the same time to get B12 shots. <laughs> it's kind of a common thing sometimes for older people. wasn't so common for 25-year-olds, but I've been doing it ever since. And you know what? As long as I take those injections every three weeks or so, like the doctor tells me to, I don't feel any of those symptoms. But sometimes, maybe, you know, if I get caught between a prescription renewal or something like that, get busy and forget, those symptoms start creeping back in. It feels like a heart attack. And the scary thing is, it feels like a heart attack. But I know it's not. I can't always trust. This may not be the most solid medical advice ever, okay? But in my case, I am not a doctor. All right. But in my case, I can't always trust those feelings. I guess that's a physical example of a spiritual reality. I need to pursue Jesus and not feelings. Pursue Christ. The Bible assures me, if I seek him, I will find Matthew chapter 7. Look for that truth and allow your feelings to be shaped by your knowledge, not the other way around. All right, number four. Let's just uh, move on here. Number four is salvation by man-made religion. Salvation by man-made religion. Let's look at Galatians chapter 1 a moment, verses through 10. You know, you can drive down the road these days and you can find all, all sorts of religious institutions. They might be called, those buildings may be called different things, church buildings, temples, mosques, what have you. You know, they were dealing with this kind of thing in New Testament times as well. Maybe not exactly the same, but there were folks out there that were preaching other things, even preaching things that sounded very similar to the truth. Paul addresses that in Galatians 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Okay, Paul's talking to Christians. They've already been taught the truth. They've, they've received the truth in obedience. And Paul says, why are you going after something else? He calls it a different gospel. And then in verse 7 he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Oh, here we go. This isn't about, you know, I'm better than somebody else. This isn't about believe me and not them. This isn't a jealousy thing because they've got more people than we do in our building. I mean, that, that's all trite stuff. That, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is the truth. The gospel. And here's somebody that's teaching something that isn't the gospel, but they're saying that it is. This is really serious. And so he says in verse 8, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. All right, Paul, even if we came back, Paul said, you know me. And even if I came and said, do this, and it's something different than what we've preached to you before, let him be accursed. Now, how many times does an inspired writer have to say something for it to be true? Uh, one, right? That's it. But here in Galatians 1, the emphasis is really driven home by a repetition of the same thing in the next verse. Verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel that you received, let him be accursed. Verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's possible for me to be deceived into believing that there is something else that's the gospel 
rather than what the truth actually teaches. And I think we see a concrete example of this back in Jesus' time as we look to passages like Mark chapter 7. Here were these hypocritical Jews. By the way, they were the Jewish leaders of the day. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus rebukes them because rather than teaching the truth of God, they taught what they wanted. Mark 7, beginning at verse 6, Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied well about you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then Jesus adds this in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is really serious. I want to be the person in power, in charge. I want to get to tell people what to do. And so I'm going to amend the law of God so I can have the opportunity to breathe down somebody else's neck about something. Or I want the most people in my corner. And so we're going to amend this word of God in a way so that maybe it will be more palatable to the majority of people. No. Jesus rebukes them for that. And you know what? Even though the things that they were teaching were rooted in Scripture, I mean, at least loosely, right? They're taking the law and they're perverting it. And they're actually adding to it, adding to God's Word. Ultimately, it was just made to conform to their own desires. And as a result, when Jesus came, they didn't even recognize Him. They rejected Him because He wasn't who they wanted Him to be. You see the danger of man-made religion? I can pass on Christ even thinking that I'm a religious person, I can justify my rejecting Jesus all in the name of this faux religion. No, I don't want to do that. Seek him. He's the only way. Hey, here's the last one, all right? Number five, salvation by health and wealth. Sometimes we think, hey, I'm doing pretty good, relatively healthy, as long as I take my injections three times. No, anyway. I'm relatively healthy. I've got enough. God must be blessing me. How can you tell me that I'm not saved when it's pretty clear that I'm continuing to do okay? Salvation by health and wealth. You know, it's possible to gain the whole world and lose your soul. Jesus says that in Mark 8, 36. What shall it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or for what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus said that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Did y'all have as dry a summer as we did down in Henderson? Wow. Well, we were praying for rain. I think we're still a little behind in terms of the rain gauge and the totals that we've had. Nevertheless, we're grateful for what we've received And you know what? People who honor God as well as people who deny God all receive the blessings of God in terms of physical life. The breath that we breathe, the rain, the sunshine, all of these things. See, the truth is wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing, but contentment is. Philippians 4, 11 and 12, Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. When I have a lot or when I don't. When I feel like I'm in good shape or when I don't feel like I'm in good shape. Whether I'm exalted or whether I'm humbled, I've learned in all of those situations, Paul said, 
contentment. And I learned it from Christ. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. In fact, the New Testament shows that wealth can be more of a danger than a blessing. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, Warn those who are rich in this world not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And he goes on to say there that it's the love of money, the love of money, that is a root of all kinds of evil. A good example of this is the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 who comes to Jesus and he asks the question that we wish everybody would come up and ask us. What do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And you think, man, here's a guy who's asking just the right questions. Now he lived in a time before Jesus had died and thus Jesus' covenant was not yet in effect. So Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, keep those. And this guy says, well, listen, I've been doing those ever since I was little. What do I lack yet? And Jesus says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You know, Jesus hasn't given us the commandment that we have to live a life where we can't have any money in the bank or anything that we claim to be ours. For this fellow, he knew that there was something that was hindering him from full devotion to Jesus. Go and sell all you have. And the man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had many possessions. Well, I don't want my stuff to get in the way of my relationship with my Lord. I want to use the things I have to steward them in a way that will honor him and glorify him. That assigns a spiritual significance even to mundane physical things because through those things I can bless others and hopefully show them the heart of Jesus. The point we're trying to make this at this juncture, though, is that I can't rely on just things are going my way to be a sign that I'm eternally saved. Look at God's blessings and recognize them and praise him for them. But know that it's deceitful to think that therefore I must be good with God and on the day of judgment all will be well. Am I saved? Think about these things that we've discussed together. Salvation by human merits, by sinner's prayer, by emotional experience, by man-made religion, by health and wealth. We could talk for a while about what makes each of these things enticing and why so many people are deceived by them. But the most pressing issue is that none of these things are the truth about what God says in terms of salvation. Faith alone cannot save. It's not the answer. But the faith that comes by hearing the word of God is Romans 10 verse 17. Emotional experiences are not the answer, but conviction that is founded on fact is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11.1, 1, the evidence of things not seen. And I drop down to verse 6, and he says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I can't rely on man-made religion, no. Instead, I need to turn completely away from my sins and from the falsehoods that others are trying to purport. And instead, I need to be willing to repent of my sins. Acts 17.30. You know, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Everybody's got a sin problem. And part of what it means to take care of that and thus to be saved from that is to be willing to turn away from those things. Physical prosperity is neither the answer nor the goal. But Jesus Christ is. And so, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, when I confess his name, wow, 
With the heart man believes to righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto or toward salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Salvation by human merit? No, I can't earn my way to heaven. The only way for me to be forgiven or justified of my sins is by the blood of Jesus. I have to surrender to him. Die with him. Rise again to walk with him. So I need to be immersed in water for the remission of my sins. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul tells me there's a clear link. You know, the, the, the water back here is just water. There's nothing special about the water itself. But the point is, Jesus has said that when I do this, I go under this water. Well, I, I'm contacting his blood because I'm submitting to this act of baptism. I'm doing it because he said so. I'm doing it in his name, so to speak. So Paul says, don't you know that many of us as were baptized into Christ? We're baptized into his death. As many of us have been baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death, and we rise to walk in newness of life, he goes on to say. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Am I saved? Well, listen. These are the things that I need to do that come from a heart of obedience. I hear God's word. I believe it. More than just check, 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 check down these lists of things. But from my giving my attention to the word of God, there's a faith that is growing, a conviction that is growing within me. And then I'm going to act on that. I'm going to turn away from my sins. These are things I'm going to continually do even throughout my Christian journey. I'm never going to turn back toward my sins again. I'm always repenting of those things. I can't ever stop believing. I've got to keep going. I continually confess the name of Jesus. And I die with him, sure. That's a one-time act, but with continual results. In fact, Paul says, for his sake, I die daily. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who continually lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 and verse 20. Am I saved? Our appeal this afternoon is rooted and grounded in truth. It's born out time and again in Scripture. So listen to 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4 as we conclude. Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. This afternoon, that's the real issue, isn't it? There are a lot of things that can deceive us. But as we consider those things over against the truth of God's word, it's really simple. And it's wonderful. And this morning, this afternoon, if those blessings are not yours, well, you can leave here knowing, I'm saved. You can know that and you can feel that. And then you can continue to grow in that as you strive to live for Jesus every day. I'm going to sing a song of encouragement. If there's anybody here who needs to respond to heaven's invitation, maybe you need the prayers of this group of people, or maybe, just maybe, you want to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, to begin a life of service and devotion to Jesus, letting nothing come in your way. Well, I tell you, we'd stop everything right now just to rejoice with you as we witness that wonderful baptism as you give your life to the Lord. We can assist somebody.
Let us know by coming to the front while we stand and sing together.